I'm Benita Lee. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 8th, 2023. Coming up, mosquito-borne viruses. We hear what it's like to get one. It was the only time in my life where I've just been like, I think I might be dying. And we'll hear about Colorado's rising cases of West Nile virus. What's driving that is a historical number of mosquitoes themselves. The abundance, we're catching numbers we have not seen before. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. In a recently published paper, researchers show that the first bees evolved on an ancient supercontinent more than 120 million years ago, diversifying faster and spreading wider than previously suspected. Previous research established that the first bees likely evolved from wasps, transitioning from predators to collectors of nectar and pollen. This new study found evidence that bees originated in western Gondwana, an ancient supercontinent that at that time included today's continents of Africa and South America. As the new continents formed, bees moved north, diversifying and spreading in a parallel partnership with flowering plants. Later, the bees colonized India and Australia. All major families of bees appeared to split off more than 65 million years ago before the era when dinosaurs became extinct. The article titled The Evolutionary History of Bees in Time and Space was published in the journal Current Biology. Think of how a dark blue car on a sunny summer day often heats up like an oven. Maybe in the moment that you're sliding onto a blazing hot seat, you wish you'd chosen the white model. But what if whatever color you chose, you always felt comfortably cool and saved on energy costs? This might become a reality in the future thanks to a new paint that's actually a multi-layered nanofilm. Researchers at Shenzhen University in China created these nanofilms by mimicking the wings of the Morpho butterfly. The Morpho's wings are a dazzling blue, thanks to a nanostructure that's highly reflective. This reflectivity produces bright, vivid colors, and it also protects butterfly wings from overheating. Traditional paints work by absorbing some light waves and reflecting back the rest. A dark blue hat absorbs more light than a white hat, so with the traditional pigments, a dark blue color can make your head feel hotter. In contrast, nanofilms reflect back all the sunlight, no matter what the color. Tests from Shenzhen University on different colored surfaces showed a marked difference in temperature. For example, on a blue car, nanofilm actually stayed a little cooler than the outside air. Nanofilm colors can range from yellows and hot pinks to that dazzling morpho butterfly blue. The researchers plan on scaling up their manufacturing process to make the nanofilms more affordable for widespread use, not just for cars, but also homes and even sun-reflecting clothing. For How on Earth, I'm Benina Lee. On the science calendar, 
the Boulder Public Library is hosting an exhibit opening this Saturday called Little Creatures Appreciating Insects and Tiny Critters Who Make Life Possible for All of Us. Join our community in exploring how our perceptions about insects are contributing to insect decline and how we can take action together to save insects and ourselves. That exhibit runs from August 12th to September 28th in the Canyon Gallery of the Boulder Public Library. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. You probably know that sound. Colorado's high levels of summer rain have made it a good year for mosquitoes and a bad year for mosquito-borne diseases. Cases of West Nile virus are rising in Colorado, including at least one death. What are the symptoms of a mosquito-borne disease? How do disease experts track hotspots? And how can you reduce your risks? How on earth has the story? I'm poor Jai Jongkit. If you spend time outdoors in the summer or fall, chances are that your enjoyment has been tempered by a mosquito. Here in the U.S., the risks of mosquito-borne diseases aren't as severe as they are in tropical countries, but people can still pick up mosquito-borne diseases during travel or stay in a tropical country. A few folks at the KGNU station have actually caught a painful mosquito-borne disease called dengue fever. This includes me, news director Shannon Young, and volunteer Emily Sosilo. So we sat down to share our experiences. Starting with Shannon talking with me about my dengue fever experience while growing up in Thailand. We were just hearing about West Nile virus, but why are we talking about dengue? Because we've all got it at some point. Yeah, all had it, all had it. Drew the short straw. I remember this because I was very upset. What actually happened was in the start of July, my grandma was hospitalized for two weeks because she got dengue fever. And then two weeks later, I got sick. That was not fun. When you're 14, you want to be hanging out with your friends, not curled up in the hospital with an IV for a week. Did you get the hemorrhagic kind? I got hemorrhagic kind, yes. They tested my blood every day. I was not allowed to leave the hospital until my platelets were a certain count. I don't remember what the count was. I felt fine when I was still, but as soon as I moved, my body was like, something is wrong, shut it down, shut it down, and I would get woozy and dizzy and nauseous. It was an awful experience, but KGNU volunteer Emily Sosilo caught dengue fever twice that second exposure was even worse. I got dengue fever when I was about eight years old, when I was visiting Indonesia. I just remember having this big mosquito bite on my forehead, and I was eating ice cream with my parents, and then suddenly I felt like super cold. And the thing is, Indonesia is in the equator, so it's never below 90 degrees. It's always super blazing hot. And I was like, oh, something must be wrong, because I'm usually like sweating and complaining how hot it is. I was like, Mom, I'm really cold. She brought me to a hospital, and it was not a pleasant experience. Let's just say that. Like poor, when I got to the hospital, they tested my blood every day, and then they just kept me hospitalized. And I just like remember thinking, like, it's so cold. It's never like hot or anything like that. 
I never knew like it was like a super bad until after it happened because I was like, oh, I'm just in the hospital because I just felt a little cold and they're wrapping me with blankets and testing my blood. Later, I got to know that this is dengue fever, um, mosquito transported disease. It was very severe and I just felt horrible for the two weeks that I was hospitalized. Yeah, I did not go to the hospital when I had dengue. News director Shannon Young stuck it out at home. They basically told us there's nothing we can do for you. There's no cure. You might as well just kind of white knuckle it out at home. By the time that it was identified that that's what I actually had, it was like, uh, you're only going to have a few more days of this anyway, but really outside of childbirth and a major accident that I suffered in my early 20s, it was the only time in my life where I've just been like, I think I might be dying. Dengue. You don't want it. It can kill you the second time around. You don't want to get it twice. Dengue. Don't get it. As we discuss West Nile virus, you know, I wonder if dengue might be coming to Boulder or coming to a town near you as the climate heats up. Yeah, well, West Nile came to America in 1999, and now it's here to stay. Be forewarned. I'm poor Daijonggit, looking into mosquito-borne diseases. Dengue fever has rarely been diagnosed in the U.S. and never in Colorado. Yet. For now, the most common mosquito-borne disease in the country is West Nile virus. Most people who become infected with West Nile virus don't develop any symptoms at all. But the Centers for Disease Control reports that one out of five get flu-like symptoms, such as a fever, a rash, diarrhea, vomiting, body aches, and fatigue that lasts a few weeks. One out of 150 cases are severe enough they can even turn deadly. So how do people get West Nile virus? Well, from mosquitoes. But humans are known as dead end hosts for West Nile. The virus has evolved to incubate in birds and mosquitoes, making humans unable to spread the virus back to a mosquito or another human. Dr. Gonzalo Vasquez Prokopek is an associate professor at the Department of Environmental Science at Emory University. He studies disease ecology and advises the World Health Organization on how to limit mosquito-borne diseases. He explains how West Nile virus is usually contained in a closed loop. For West Nile, what happens is the virus, because it circulates between birds, so the mosquito and the birds close the loop. An infected bird will have virus in the blood, the mosquito feed on the bird, incubates the virus for a few days, bites another bird, injects the virus, like a, almost like a viral syringe, and then closes the circle. And that keeps going and going and going. Now, in the specific case of West Nile, those mosquitoes also happen to bite humans. In disease ecology, this is called a spillover. Here in Colorado, the number of human West Nile virus cases is going up by the day with at least a dozen cases and one death so far. So, how do mosquitoes start carrying dangerous viruses and what can we do about them? Vasquez Prokopek says that West Nile has only been in the U.S. since 1999. So what happened is from New York and that epicenter of the introduction, very rapidly, in about four to five years, the virus made it all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast and in between. Since the first case in 1999, West Nile virus has spread to every state in the contiguous U.S. 
The virus is now endemic in the U.S. It means that it has been here since the first introduction, uh, hasn't gone away. And what we're seeing is basically the seasonal resurgence of the virus in different places. Vasquez Prokopek says the virus probably first came to the U.S. through birds, either those that migrate naturally or through a bird trade. Bird transmission is still the main way West Nile virus persists as birds are reservoirs for the virus. Dr. Vasquez Prokopek says some years, birds carry lots of West Nile virus. Other years, they don't. That's why West Nile outbreaks come in waves. Some years you might have several cases, and then the virus is gone for several years, and then it comes back. To a point that is highly difficult to predict. According to the Centers for Disease Control, big waves came 20 years ago with nearly 10,000 cases of West Nile virus, and 10 years ago with nearly 6,000 cases. Last week, the CDC reported 90 human cases of West Nile virus in the country. The most recent numbers have not been updated. But that's the number we have so far, and West Nile virus season lasts until October. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. The vast majority of mosquito species don't carry any disease-causing microbes. Unfortunately, some do. How on earth has the story? I'm poor Jai Jongkit. Here in Boulder County, one expert says mosquitoes have been testing positive for West Nile virus long before our first reported human case last week. The West Nile virus is active in Boulder County, and certainly now is the time to be vigilant, take precautions, prevent mosquito bites, and therefore prevent West Nile virus. Marshall Lips is an environmental health specialist with Boulder Public Health. He says the health department tests pools of mosquitoes by leaving out mosquito traps overnight and then sending them to the Colorado Department of Public Health to test for West Nile. From the pool analysis, health experts develop something called a vector index. The index count how many mosquitoes are out there plus what percentage carry the West Nile virus. And so as you have a high, high infection rate, high abundance, you're going to have a much higher vector index and, and therefore risk to the human population. That means there are a lot of mosquitoes infected and there's a lot of them out there to potentially bite and infect a human. The higher the vector index, the greater risk to human health. Boulder County's vector index is currently 16. Lips says 16 is a very high risk for the transmission of West Nile virus. That is a a, a risk number that we haven't seen before, and largely what's driving that is a historical number of mosquitoes themselves. The abundance, just the sheer numbers of mosquitoes out there are really historical uh, at this point, and, and we're catching numbers we have not seen before. In Boulder County, the mosquito species that spreads West Nile to humans is Culex tarsalis. The world health expert on mosquitoes we spoke with earlier, Dr. Vasquez Prokopek, says that if you want to reduce the risk of getting West Nile virus, one key thing is to know that mosquitoes in the Culex genus prefer to breed in still standing water. So half of their life they spend in water and the other half they fly and bite people. So the aquatic stages of the mosquito require what we call nitrogen-rich water, water that is dirty and full of input from different sources that increases nitrogen and bacteria because bacteria are what they eat. Vasquez Prokopek says still standing waters are common in many old cities, underground sewer systems. In California, 
its abandoned swimming pools and Chicago catch basins that clog up. The water accumulates after a rain, you know, all the trash and even fertilizers from houses will go there and the mosquitoes find those places, lay their eggs uh, by the hundreds, and then a big population emerges. But Vasquez Prokopek says having lots of rain does not always mean more mosquitoes. Although more rain is better for mosquitoes, too much rain is bad. Why? Because the mosquitoes need to feed in water that have bacteria and algae. And if you keep having rain every day, imagine that you're diluting their food constantly. Frequent rain washes out standing water. But Vasquez Prokopek says that two to three weeks between big rainstorms can let mosquitoes breed. So the, the water, basically those catch basins accumulate water, and then that water has enough time for bacteria to grow and also mosquitoes to grow. So between two and three weeks, it's more relevant than just having rain and rain and rain. Boulder County environmental health expert Marshall Lips has an example of how incremental rain can help stoke mosquito populations in Colorado. You're going to have those areas along the sides of the creek that later in the summer when, that, when the creek drops and the water flow uh, slows, you get those, those pools on the side of the, the creek which can produce certain species of mosquitoes. Um, but as you as that creek stays up and the water keeps moving, you just don't have that. So it's a, a kind of a visual way to see how that can work. Um, now, once it stops raining and those water levels drop, then you get the leftover water at the side of the creek. And three weeks later, here you are with a lot of mosquitoes, maybe until another rain event, hopefully, uh, which could raise that creek again. But crossing fingers for more monsoon rains comes with another caveat. Here in Colorado, their record moisture has let a record number of mosquitoes breed. Lips says the humidity and increased vegetation mean mosquitoes are also living longer than usual. And when it gets real hot and dry and windy, those are conditions that are very tough on an adult mosquito. They get blown around, they dry out, it's hot. They have to go find uh, areas for shade. Um, those areas are dry when you have low humidity levels. We're seeing a lot of vegetation, a lot of humidity, great conditions for mosquitoes to thrive in general. My, my yard would normally be getting pretty brown by now. Uh, not the case this year. And there's a lot of great harborage for those adult mosquitoes and harborage just being areas where they hang out uh, during the day or, or when they're not active, when they're resting. So a lot of nice uh, shady areas that, that are moist and damp and lush with vegetation. It's possible we they could even be having a longer lifespan and therefore able to lay uh, more batches of eggs. But, uh, you know, certainly the conditions out in the environment right now um, are very conducive to a healthy mosquito population. Lips also finds standing water in roadside runoff basins they're supposed to drain but clog up. Uh, you get a few cattails in there and suddenly you have this nice kind of marshy area that, that just becomes more of a permanent fixture, you know, certainly producers of, of mosquitoes. As some good news, Lips says that mosquitoes in the mountains are often not the right species to transmit West Nile virus. As bad news in Colorado's urban centers, we do have West Nile virus mosquitoes. And on the plains, standing water is more common. To combat the spread of West Nile, Boulder County focuses on killing larvae. They find standing water in irrigated pastures, roadside ditches and marshes, 
and they apply a bacterial agent that kills mosquito larvae. Trucks of staff heading out to spray mosquitoes is only a tiny fraction of mosquito control work, and most of it is done by larvae technicians. While there is no way to stop all mosquitoes, it is important to try to limit the populations that carry diseases, such as West Nile virus. That's why Boulder County health expert Marshall Lips says the best way to prevent mosquito-borne disease is to prevent mosquito bites. We urge residents to protect themselves by wearing mosquito repellent. And it doesn't have to just be DEET anymore. That used to be the number one repellent. And by far, it still is the best repellent out there. However, the CDC has recommended any number of other repellents, picaridin, IR3535, oil, lemon, eucalyptus. In addition to repellent, Marshall Lips says to avoid being outdoors when the mosquitoes are out. To limit your time outdoors during dusk and dawn when our mosquito populations, and especially the species of concern for West Nile virus, are most active. Wearing long sleeves, long pants, anything you can do to prevent mosquito bites is key to preventing West Nile virus. Lips also advises people to look around their home or property for anything that can hold standing water and drain that water so mosquito larvae can't survive. So that could be a bird bath, uh, rain gutters, swimming pools, anything that water stands in longer than really three or four days at this time of the season could potentially breed mosquitoes. So if you have a bird bath, that's fine. Just make sure that you dump that water and refill it every couple of days so you have fresh water in there so the mosquitoes don't get a chance to um, breed. If your recycling bin blew over, look under the bushes, look under the deck, see if there's containers that are holding standing water. Um, You'd be surprised if you look real hard, I bet most people can find something that's holding water on their property. And it doesn't take a whole lot to breed mosquitoes. For a pond, Lips recommends a recirculation pump to keep the water flowing. And now, a word about insecticides. World Health Organization mosquito expert Dr. Gonzalo Vasquez Prokopec says that they are used to combat mosquitoes, but their heavy use comes with the risk of harming other insects. There is also a risk of insecticide resistance. Take malaria, for example. Vasquez Prokopec says malaria mosquitoes in rural Africa are becoming resistant to the insecticides used on bed nets and in sprays. Mosquitoes also evolve. Something might work now, maybe. A few years along the line, the mosquitoes might become resistant, particularly for insecticides. So then we always have to be on the defensive, innovating and also studying mosquitoes. The same is happening in Mexico, with mosquitoes showing resistance to household insecticides such as Braid and Vagan. Here in the U.S., Vasquez Prokopec says insecticide resistance varies greatly between regions and that there is no comprehensive countrywide research on the resistance. This gap in knowledge bodes an issue when trying to properly apply insecticide. Why that matters? Because in places like Atlanta and other places, homeowners hire companies to do mosquito control. Those companies end up using insecticides without knowing what the background resistance level in the mosquito population is. What tends to happen is that they could become an additional source of evolution. And also, if they're using a product to which the mosquitoes are not Susceptible, of course, to the homeowner, it's an additional cost with no real benefit. 
When mosquitoes evolve to combat human prevention measures, their populations become more difficult to control. The gap in research is even more concerning as warming temperatures increase the range of mosquitoes. This means that in the coming years, mosquitoes and the diseases they carry may be appearing further north than they historically have. The threat of resistance has two edges. One is it makes interventions to be less effective, but in the long run also it makes them to be more expensive. The only thing I could say after many years of work and advising the World Health Organization, the Pan American Health Organization, CDC, we do not have a magic bullet for mosquito control. We have methods that work in different settings and conditions. Sometimes those methods don't work in other settings and conditions. So the best thing we can do is learn about the mosquitoes, what they do, and, and tailor some of the tools to those settings. Scientists all over the world are striving to create new ways to combat mosquito-borne diseases, from using robots to hunt for mosquito hotspots and sewers, to vaccinating male mosquitoes so they become sterile. These innovative projects are at various stages of implementation, some of them being currently too expensive to expand beyond a research setting, while some are starting to gain ground in practical use. Still, at the end of the day, we can't completely stop mosquitoes. But mosquito-borne diseases are preventable. So best to garb up, keep the bug spray on, and do your best to keep your homes free of still-standing water. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Port Dijonke. No me moleste mosquito, no me moleste mosquito, no me moleste mosquito, why don't you go No me moleste mosquito, just let me eat my burrito, no me moleste mosquito, why don't you go home? That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Doors. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and hot links to topics we discussed today. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- 447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Benita Lee. And I'm Joel Parker.